Utterly Moderate is the official podcast of the Connors Institute for Nonpartisan Research and Civic Engagement at Shippensburg University. Please visit us at connorsinstitute.org to sign up for our free email newsletter. While you are there, also be sure to check out all of our great research and resources. Please listen carefully. 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 Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the program. This is the Utterly Moderate Podcast, and I'm your host, Lawrence Eppard. Thank you so much for joining us again for another episode. I really appreciate you being here. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a new documentary and a new research study, which purport to poke major holes in some dominant public discourses. So one thing we're going to talk about is a new research study which argues that income inequality has actually not been rising over the past few decades, despite what uh, the dominant narrative is. Now, we're going to talk about that in the second half of today's podcast. The first thing we're going to talk about is a new documentary titled The Fall of Minneapolis. And the creators of this documentary, what they claim that they do in this documentary is they claim that they disprove the dominant narrative that George Floyd was killed by Derek Chauvin. So uh, I went into watching this documentary like I do everything that I read, everything that I watch. I wanted to be proven wrong. I know that sounds weird. Most people don't want to be proven wrong. I do. I want, when I'm reading something, when I'm watching something, I want to be proven wrong. I want to learn that I was wrong about something and that, uh, you know, I want to incorporate some new piece of information. And the, the reason why I want to be proven wrong is because it means I'm getting smarter. I know that at no point in time in my life will I know everything. I know that, right? And so I enjoy being proven wrong because being proven wrong means I'm getting closer to the truth. I'm, I'm learning something I believed wasn't true, and then I'm, I'm getting some new piece of information that gets me closer to the truth. So that's a good thing. And so I watched The Fall of Minneapolis uh, looking for reasons why I was wrong. So I went into it assuming that Derek Chauvin had killed George Floyd, and I welcomed the opportunity to be proven wrong, to be proven uh, you, know, you know, to be uh, convinced that, no, there was some other reason why George Floyd died. So for starters, the documentary was produced by an outlet called Alpha News. And th- there's a huge red flag right there because Alpha News is an organization that has a, a history of inaccurate and very biased reporting. And this is according both to researchers at our Connors Institute, but also at organizations like NewsGuard and All Sides. So for starters, the people who are making these claims have a history of making really misleading and biased and inaccurate claims. So that's a red flag right away. But again, 
you know, that, that tells me something, but I'm still willing to, uh, to judge an article, to judge a documentary on the merits, even if it's produced by somebody who has a history of being really misleading and, and dishonest. So I still judged it on the merits. Okay, so we'll set that aside for a moment. So what does the documentary claim? Okay, so for starters, they allege that drugs and pre-existing health conditions were really the, the cause of George Floyd's death. Now, it is true that George Floyd had pre-existing health problems. It is true that he had a high level of drugs in his system, and the level could be lethal to some. But here's the problem. And again, I watched this documentary more than once, very closely, and it does not prove whether or not these drugs would be lethal to George Floyd. Could be lethal to some, but not lethal to others. And so they don't prove that it would be lethal to George Floyd. Furthermore, many people who are experts in this area have concluded that the actions taken by the officers during Floyd's arrest contributed to his death. So if he was having trouble because of underlying health issues, because of drugs, what these experts have said is, yeah, those things contributed, but he wouldn't necessarily have died. So the officers were incredibly negligent in making these problems worse by kneeling on him in a prone position and making it more difficult for him to breathe. That's what the experts have said. And this documentary doesn't do anything to disprove that. They make poor arguments. They distort the facts. uh, They ignore others. They cherry pick evidence to make it seem like drugs and underlying health problems are the only factors. It's just incredibly dishonest. I was really disappointed. I wanted to learn something. And from that particular part of the documentary, I learned nothing because it was really, really obvious they were being dishonest, and you can, tell it, you can tell as you're watching it they're being dishonest. Another key argument that the documentary makes is that the police officers were following their training and that the body cam footage proves that Derek Chauvin's knee was not on George Floyd's neck, that it was on his shoulder or on his back. Okay, now again, I watched this with an open mind. I watched this hoping to learn something, learn something that I was wrong about so that I could become smarter about this issue. But it appears this claim just isn't true. Okay, so let's start with the technique. The documentary doesn't go into nearly enough detail about what the technique is and whether they were following it correctly. And again, many experts who've looked at this have argued that, no, it appears they didn't follow the technique correctly. So let's that's one issue, okay? But... The body cam footage that they claim is the slam dunk that you can see that his knees uh, not on his neck, that it's it's on his back or on his shoulder. So this body cam footage, if you watch the documentary, it's at an angle that actually makes it really difficult to see where his knee is. You can't actually tell. Furthermore, the body cam footage is only a few seconds. And so let's just pretend for a moment that the body cam footage showed beyond a shadow of a doubt that the knee was on the neck or on the back. It wasn't, I'm sorry, that the knee was on the shoulders or the back and wasn't on the neck. Let's just pretend for a moment that's what it showed. Again, it's really hard to see at the angle that it's at, so it doesn't show that. Let's pretend it did, though. It's only a few seconds of a nine-minute arrest, right? So 
where was his knee the rest of the time? So it doesn't show where his knee was during those few seconds. It doesn't show where his knee was the rest of the time. Again, this is just incredibly misleading. Um, I think it's dishonest. Uh, I, I think these people are are not honest brokers. They're, they're, they're not good faith actors. It's really poor journalism. Um, and I, I was disappointed. I wanted to learn something. And quite honestly, I don't think that I did. I think I came away from this um, just kind of affirming what I knew before, which is it's highly likely that uh, the, the, the actions of the officers contributed to Floyd's death and that had they not been kneeling on him in the prone position, probably wouldn't have died. Uh, but I want to talk about this with somebody who knows more about this than I do. Uh, Robert Verbruggen's a friend of the show. He's from the Manhattan Institute. He's written about this particular incident. He's also written about uh, issues around police and race, and he's a really good person to have on to talk about this. So, Robert, welcome back to the program, my friend. Good to be here. All right, let's start our conversation by talking about this new documentary from Alpha News titled The Fall of Minneapolis. So uh, the people who produced this documentary... They claim that it pokes huge holes in the official story that George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin. Um, we can start with the fact that it was produced by Alpha News, uh, which is a really untrustworthy outlet. So they do not gather and present information responsibly. They don't have effective practices for correcting errors. They don't handle the difference between news and opinion responsibly. So... Uh, those assessments come from NewsGuard. Uh, All Sides has them rated as hyperpartisan, so they've got some serious, serious problems as a news outlet. But let's set that aside for a moment and just judge the documentary on the merits. So, uh, Robert, what do the uh, producers of this documentary, what do they claim that they are accomplishing with this film? Well, I think the two big questions, both legally and in, in the documentary, are you know to what extent um, was Derek Chauvin's behavior consistent with his training, um, and to what extent was uh, you know, the, his behavior, the restraint, um, a contributing factor to the death. Um, le- legally speaking, the, the term is substantial causal factor. You need to show that that what he did was a su- substantial causal factor in the death um, in order to find him guilty of the charges he was he was found guilty of. Okay, so I watched this documentary with an open mind. I aggressively look for opportunities to prove myself wrong. I don't care whether I was right yesterday. I want to get to the truth today. And so I steel man all of my arguments, all of my beliefs. And that means that I I put them up against the very best opposing arguments. Again, I don't care whether I was right yesterday. I actually look forward to changing my mind and revising my beliefs and, and adding nuance to them. And so I watched this documentary with that in mind, I wanted to steel man my belief that George Floyd had been killed by Derek Chauvin. If this documentary has some piece of evidence that revises that belief, that changes it, that alters it in some way, that's good. That means that I have learned something, that I'm smarter, that I'm closer to the truth than I was yesterday. And so I watched it with a very open mind to see if the experience helped me get closer to the truth about this situation. And so one of the things that they claim to do in this documentary is they claim to show that 
Derek Chauvin not only was trained on something called the maximal restraint technique, but that he applied it correctly. Uh, And it does appear that the first claim is true. It does appear that the police officers in this precinct were trained on the maximal restraint technique. And you can Google that and look it up and and see what that is. Um, But people who support this documentary, they say it's a slam dunk that he was trained and that he did it correctly. That second claim that he did it correctly, uh, I just, again, I watched it with an open mind. I don't know how you could come away from watching this documentary that it's a slam dunk that he, he applied it correctly. So there's like a few seconds of body cam footage that show his knee uh, somewhere near the neck or shoulder, but you really can't tell. And so even if you could, even if you could see the knee is definitely on the shoulder, it's only a few seconds. And so you don't know where his knee was the rest of the time during the arrest, right? Uh, But even that few seconds, it's not actually really clear where his knee is. So uh, people who watch this say it's a slam dunk. His knee is definitely on his his shoulder, and therefore he did it correctly, and, and he didn't kill George Floyd. I don't think you get that impression at all. Again, it's very hard to see where his knee is in that body cam footage, and it's only a few seconds of the arrest. You don't see where his knee is the rest of the time, right? So uh, what about you, uh, Robert, about this particular uh, theme of the maximal restraint technique? What do you have to say about that? Well, so here's the thing. I I really wish the documentary had gone into a lot more detail about what the maximal restraint is and and how how it's taught. Um, The thing is, this um, the maximal restraint technique is in the handbook, has been in the handbook. They actually just, uh, I think they're uh, uh, repealed it this year. Um, so it, it was, it has absolutely been a part of the training. I mean, it was absolutely part of the trial too. If you go through the testimony by folks like Chief, Chief Arandondo, um, the, uh, the witness, uh, I think his name is Johnny Mercil, who's one of the training experts that they had on there. They all discussed uh, mat- maximal restraint technique. Um, and the way the maximal restraint technique normally works is you restrain somebody. It's, it's, it's using cases where you've already handcuffed somebody, but they're not compliant. And that was definitely the case with, with George Floyd. Um, it, what you do is you restrain somebody and yeah, that that can yeah, that can mean you know putting them in the prone position on their on their stomach. That can mean uh, you know uh, using your knees to control them. Um, but the idea is that you attach this uh, device called a hobble to them. It's if you ever heard of hog tying, it's it's not quite the same thing as hog tying. It's a little more genteel version of it. Um, but basically, it, it uh, ties their legs together and it connects to their waist so that they can no longer resist with their legs. They can't kick. They can't uh, can't flee. That sort of thing. Um, and that's the way that that the witnesses described it at the trial. And that's the way uh, that's just described in the handbook. Um, that's the way it's normally done. Um, so the, in the video, they unambiguously start doing that. They, they you, you hear them say, you know, should I think they say, should we MRT him or should we do MRT something to that effect? You hear them say that. That's definitely what they're doing. Um, they actually go and get the hobble device. Um, but then when they, the, they come back with a hobble device, they have a conversation and they, they basically point out two things. One is that um, they think uh, emergency services are on their way quickly. Um, and the other is that uh, if they put the hobble device on, they're going to have to get a sergeant because the policy says you need to get a supervisor if you're going to do that. So um, at that point, they decide to, to hold him where he is instead of putting the hobble on. Um, and this is important because if you put the hobble on, the, the policy says very clearly you have to turn them on their side. And the reason it's important to turn them on their side is that when somebody's in a prone position, it can be dangerous if they have health problems. Like a normal person can certainly sleep on their stomach, um, lie down on their stomach for a while, even have somebody sit on them. But if somebody has 
has uh, you know, serious problems or is having pressure put on their stomach, um, they can have trouble getting enough oxygen. That's that's a known thing. It's called positional asphyxia, and that that's something that that cops are trained on. Um, so so basically, instead of putting the hobble on and moving him to his side, they keep him face down like that. So there's I think there's actually an interesting semantic question of whether they're still doing MRT at that point. Um, because the documentary um, advances the case that they're basically doing MRT the whole time. But if you read the uh, the closing arguments of the, at the trial um, of the prosecution and the defense, they're actually flipped. The defense was saying, you know, hey, they considered doing MRT, but they backed off of that. They were actually presenting it as a de-escalation that they didn't put the hobble on. I don't know if it actually counts as a de-escalation to keep somebody pinned to the pavement instead of uh, you know putting them in a, in a hobble and moving to their side. But that was the argument that the defense made. Um, whereas the, the prosecution was saying, you know, that this was effectively a maximal restraint technique that they're continuing to use um, through the entire nine minutes and 30 seconds. Um, and if, if you also watch, you know, the both the closing argument and you know, the various experts that the prosecution called, um, the point was not that maximum restraint technique wasn't real. And it was also not that you can never put a knee in somebody's back. Um, if they, had, they played a little bit of a semantic game that the, the documentary makers capitalized on where they would, uh, and I'm punching this up for effect here, but they would say something like, they would show the picture, um, I think it's from a bystander camera of Derek, Floyd, uh, Derek Chauvin with a, his knee on, on Floyd's neck. And they would say something to the effect of, you know, is this a licensed, authorized, uh, trademarked, official MPD trained neck restraint or something to that effect. And, and, and the witness would say no. And that's, that's what you see in the documentaries them them denying that it was a part of, you know, it was an official neck restraint trained by the MPD. Um, but those weren't the only questions there are follow-up questions. And of course, Chauvin had his own lawyer uh, at, at the, at these hearings questioning the same witnesses. So if you, if you look at, at the sort of the bulk of the testimony, they often, you know, hedge it. They, they come back, they say, yes, you're allowed to control people in a prone position by putting your knee on somebody. And, um, the problem isn't that his knee ever touched his back or his neck. The problem is what happened over the course of those nine and a half minutes. You know, you can use, you can use those kinds of techniques to train some, to, to restrain somebody. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to get somebody who's not compliant to do what you want to do without hurting them. Um, so that's why they're, they're trained to use some, some of these grappling techniques and restraining techniques to get somebody under control without just you know, wailing on them. Um, but over the course of those nine and a half minutes, Floyd stops resisting. He becomes uh, basically non-responsive. And then they try to find a pulse and they can't find a pulse. And they keep that, that restraint on through all of that. Um, and if, if that's part of the training, if, if, if uh, part of the maximal restraint training is that you can you know, keep somebody in that position indefinitely until, until medics arrive, no matter how long that takes, and you don't have to take consideration of their, their, mental, their, uh, their health state, um, I, I haven't seen any evidence of that. I would, I would really like to be a fly on the wall during some of these trainings to know exactly what they were taught because the policy handbook doesn't exactly lay out the entire procedure of this is how you restrain them, this is how you put the, the, the hobble on, and so on and so forth. I would really like to know more about that. Um, but, but according to what was presented at trial and what, what is presented in the manual, the purpose of MRT is, is generally to get somebody in that hobble restraint. Um, and, and if you're not doing that, uh, you're basically holding them in a dangerous position that cops are trained to avoid, which is the, the prone position that can, can hinder breathing. Yeah, I, I had the the strange feeling when I was watching it that um, when I they, they kept playing, as you said, these clips where the cops were at the trial were denying that this thing was ever like a, a technique, and I, I had the strange feeling that that actually wasn't what they were responding to. What they were saying was basically, "Is this how you were trained to do that?" And if they were doing it incorrectly, then they would say no. They weren't saying no. We've never been trained to do this, but they're saying yeah. this is not how you should have done this, right? 
Yeah, essentially there's a big difference between an MPD trained neck restraint or whatever the exact semantics they threw at the witnesses and something actually being prohibited. So when you use that clip, and, and this is the prosecution's fault, frankly, because I think it's kind of nonsense to, to, to play that kind of game. But but the thing is, in a trial, it's it's an adversarial process, and and you you uh, you have the the other the other lawyer um, takes a crack at it too. You have other questions in the same line of questioning, um, and it, if you read those transcripts, if you go through, I mean, this is all on YouTube. This was a televised trial. Um, you, you see that they they generally did admit that it's you, yes, you can control somebody with a, a knee to their back, and they even went through a, a different training image. This was on handcuffing rather than MRT. Um, there's a tra- a different training image they describe where um, uh, an officer has the, their knee on sort of the shoulder blade to neck type of area. Um, and talked about it. So, so these are things that were, were talked about at the trial and discussed with the jury. And um, I mean, one thing I, I would like kind of, kind of to say is that I think there's a big difference between the sort of the, the stupid narrative that got out right away at the beginning where everybody was saying, um, you know, George Floyd basically wasn't doing anything wrong. They, they put, put their knee in his neck and totally blocked off his, his ability to breathe for nine and a half minutes and he died versus the version that was presented at trial. Because you can't, you can't play that kind of game at a trial because it's, this is a, somebody who's going to be watching um, you know, many days of testimony about this and, and the other side is going to get to have it say. So there's, there's the intelligent version of the argument that of, for, for Chauvin's guilt that was presented at trial is much more compelling than the, the sort of the stupid version that, that kind of made its way around the public consciousness right after this happened. Um, and I think the documentary is less satisfying in addressing the, the version that was, less, that was presented at trial. Well, and the only reason why I watch it and why I brought you on today was because somebody who I respect, he's talking about this, this documentary, like it's this great documentary and it's changed his mind. And I watched it and, and I had the same response you had, which is basically, uh, I understand they've been trained to do this, but I I did not come with the documentary understanding whether they did the thing correctly and whether they applied it in the correct circumstance. Right. So, uh, and I'm not sure the documentary answers that question, does it? Um, no, I, I don't think it does. No. Um, but I mean, I think not everybody, like I, I wrote articles about the, the George Floyd killing for National mm-hmm. Review while I was there. I, I paid attention to all this. I followed it to a greater extent than a lot of people did. Um, a lot of people never saw that video that they showed at the beginning. There was actually a lot of confusion. I think uh, it might have been a Megyn Kelly segment or something where she said it was never before seen. Um, the video they showed at the beginning, the, the, the body camera video of Floyd being arrested initially, um, where you can tell that he's, he's not compliant. He's, he's uh, you know, refusing to get in the squad car. He's not directly attacking or punching the officer or anything like that, but he's certainly not not compliant with with their their orders to show him his hands and get in the car and so on and so forth. I think a lot of people just really missed missed a lot of the details about that because it wasn't a focus for a lot of the media. Um, and 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 I think the, a, a very good thing about the documentary actually is it sort of provides a corrective to that um, to that the simple narrative on one side by responding to it with a, a some simple narrative with a simple narrative on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I went into it with an open mind partly because I've talked to people like you. And found that so many previous incidents in, in the Great Awakening turned out to not be what we thought they were. So like Michael Brown, for instance, ends up being the opposite of what the public narrative was. Uh, he wasn't walking away from the cops with his hands up. You know, he actually was what I think threatening the cop. Um, yeah. So I mean, um, running at him. Yeah, you know, it, the cops certainly felt threatened. It, it was the it was, certainly wasn't what you know, the well, public I mean, my, was. My recollection is that they they struggled for a while, and then he ended up charging at him at the end, and that's when the right. shots shots were fired. If I recall, he was not correctly. walking away with his hands up. You know, definitely not. Um, that, no. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and there was something else in the documentary that some friends of mine who had seen it they they saw it and they said, "Oh, it's such a slam dunk." Uh, case you you see the body cam footage and you see his knees not actually on his neck it's on his back 
again, I, I went into watching this with an open mind. It was that body cam footage was really hard to tell where his knee was. I actually thought the bystander video was clearer than the body cam image because it was so, it was such a weird angle and it was so close. Um, I couldn't actually tell where his knee was. What, what did, how did you feel looking at I, that body? I cam? mean, honestly, I come at it from a little different perspective than that because, you know, as I said um, before, like the prone position can be dangerous, even if there's no pressure, it can right. be the person's right. own body weight. Um, and if there's pressure to the back or the neck that, that compounds it. And if it's continued for nine minutes and 30 seconds, uh, that, that, that compounds it. So it as wouldn't well. even matter if it was the neck, right? Right. Well, I mean, it, it, it matters. I mean, obviously there's some places you'd rather have pressure on your back for, sure, for a prolonged sure, period sure. of time than others. Um, but, but the other thing um, I would note is just that you try to imagine uh, kneeling in exactly the same place for almost 10 minutes. I mean, you're probably going to shift around. Um, sure. I, I think the right. um, the prosecution's closing ar- argument even referred to him like shimmying or something like that. Um, he, I, I, I have no doubt that his his, uh, his knee was in different places at different times. I, right. It certainly wasn't, I think it's fair to say his ne- it wasn't always on his neck. Um, it might have been on his neck for part of it, but, but at, at at, uh, at the end of the day, the fact that he's in a prone position uh, and putting pressure on it and continuing to do that for several minutes after he's non-responsive uh, and loses a pulse, to me, that's where you really have to defend him. If you're going to make a case for not, not charging Derek Chauvin, you need to explain why he's still doing it at that point, um, which, which gets harder to do. Some of the, the arguments they did make at trial are, uh, you know, oh, he uh, was afraid that he would, you know, uh, come back and, and, and resist again, or, or he was getting nervous about, you know, there were a lot of very, very angry bystanders at this point. He was nervous about that. He was taking consideration of that. Those are arguments you can make. But at the end of the day, I think it's very hard to tell somebody, uh, to tell a jury that it's okay to, to, to keep kneeling on somebody after they've you know, lost their pulse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, this documentary didn't, didn't really make me feel any better about what I knew about this case. It actually made me more confused, but yeah, um, it sent me into a, a tailspin of uh, internet research and hunting through transcripts from the trial. So, <laughs> well, so here's another issue they bring up, and I'm hoping you can shed some light on this. So, my understanding of the autopsy is, and of the medical examiner, is that he eventually concludes that it was a murder and that there was neck compression. Uh, but, and maybe you can help me sort this out. This documentary claims that none of that's in the initial autopsy that, uh, and let me have my, I'll look at my notes here. Uh, but they argue that the initial autopsy, they say 12 hours after the death of George Floyd, the, the primary causes of death are heart disease, drugs. Apparently he had a lethal level of uh, fentanyl in his system along with some other drugs and the physical exertion of his arrest, no mention of injuries, bruising, no mention of um, asphyxiation, anything like that. Uh, but I think eventually the autopsy report says there was neck compression and that the cause of death was murder. Help me understand what this documentary is claiming versus what you think uh, the evidence suggests. Sure. I mean, well, well, first of all, when the um, medical examiner uh, declares something, they declare it a homicide, um, which is more of a medical term. Murder is a legal term. Um, They don't decide whether something was legally justified or not. Um, They say that one person caused the death of another. Um, And the this is an area where, you know, first of all, we're really at the the, the mercy of people who have uh, medical expertise. Um, I, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a you know, forensic pathologist or anything like that. Um, and of course, in this case, there was a lot of pressure on these people too. So I think it's there is um, uh, a legitimate worry that that there's pressure on this. But what what um, what the officials there were at least three different. Um, 
takes on the autopsy. There was the official report um, from from Minneapolis. There was a, a separate report by the Armed Forces Medical Examiner, um, and there was a third one commissioned by uh, Floyd's family. Uh, and and they, they concluded slightly different things, um, but they basically what all of them basically concluded is that the um, the pressure that was on Floyd uh, made it difficult for him to breathe. It didn't completely choke off his airway. It didn't make it impossible for him to breathe, but it made it uh, so he didn't get enough oxygen. Um, and eventually this um, contributed to his death um, and his heart stopping. Um, and so, so that's worded in different ways. Um, the official report said it was a, um, you know, a cardiopulmonary arrest um, as, as a result of the, the, um, the pressure that was on him, um, whereas the the armed forces medical examiner added that there were elements of positional and me- mechanical asphyxia, referring to the the, the, the lack of breathing, um, and so on. Um, but you know, these these are very difficult things. Um, so to, to me, it really takes you to the question of what's a reasonable doubt and what's what's not a reasonable doubt. You can tell by watching the video, you know, he's he's not well at the beginning, but he's alive. He's he's on his feet. He's walking around, and by the end of the nine and a half minutes, he's completely gone. Um, and you had testimony at the trial um, uh, uh, involving a lot of these different issues, uh, involving you know the, the size of his heart, the, um, the fentanyl. Um, and the fentanyl, to me, is a really interesting case because the, the level of fentanyl in a system isn't all that informative. Um, you can have somebody who overdoses at a considerably lower level than he had, um, but they showed at the trial that, that about 25% of people with, who are, are arrested for DUIs um, with fentanyl in their system have a higher level than that. So, I mean, that's a level that might kill you, might not. He had a, he had, he had a high tolerance. And you also had testimony at the trial claiming that um, you know that the way he lost consciousness and so on you know what they saw in that video was that indicative of what it would look like um, from somebody dying of a fentanyl overdose and going into a coma and so on um, so that's I mean these are things that you you you're really in the hands of these medical uh, experts to decide and you also have to ask yourself you know what what's a reasonable doubt is it a reasonable doubt that you know because he had a lot of fentanyl in the system that he could have died of that fentanyl overdose you know coincidentally during those nine and a half minutes um, while he was being restrained I mean I think that's a theoretical possibility. It's, it, it's some sort of doubt. Um, but I, I think it's, a, I think if I were on the jury, it'd be a very difficult question whether that counts as a reasonable doubt or not. You're somebody who covered this. You've read a lot about this, you know, a lot about the information. So at the end of the day, how do you think about this? Do, do you think somebody uh, that, that Derek Chauvin should have gone to jail? Uh, do you think that, um, you know, he, 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 he acted incorrectly, but shouldn't have gone to jail? What's your, what's your overall impression of knowing everything you know, you know, how might you have voted if you were on the jury? All right, yeah, if, if I'm on the jury, and uh, yeah, I'll admit I haven't watched the entire trial. There's days and days of testimony, but I've, I've read a lot of the documents, I've read a lot of the transcripts, and know, knowing what I know, I, I think I probably would have voted to convict him on at least some of the lesser charges. Um, I think what, what they ended up convicting him of, and I think this is something that's that's important too that a lot of people don't realize, they didn't convict him of an intentional murder. Uh, uh, Minnesota has a, a, it's essentially a felony murder statute where they're saying that he committed a felony assault in the way that he restrained Floyd. Um, and, uh, that that caused his death. So so you can it, it's similar to the the way that you might prosecute somebody who um, was along with somebody else on a robbery and the other person shot you know the bank teller or what have you. Um, and, and I think that's I'm not a fan of those kinds of laws in general. And I think it's it's, it's a little bit of a stretch to maybe apply it in this case. But I mean certainly the, you know, the lowest the lowest charge it was I think it was one of the manslaughter charges. Um, is uh, you know, just just has to be that he was negligent in the way he he uh, behaved and that caused the death and and that I think I, I would I would vote for I think uh, the, the evidence is pretty strong that that uh, the restraint caused the death and that it was not that it was well beyond what a reasonable officer would do in that situation uh, regardless of whether you you consider him to be um, doing MRT or not. Um, 
and you know, and basically, what I, th- what I think, I think what he did was was wrong, um, and, and I think uh, I think that contributed to the death. You can see, Robert, why it's so difficult in, in an age of so much information. You could see why it's so difficult for Americans because uh, you know the public discourse is one thing, and what Black Lives Matter said, and what many leftist politicians were saying was one thing. Uh, you know, what the right was saying was another thing. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't uh, watch the trial closely. I didn't read all the information that you read. Um, And so when I come at these things, uh, I have a very incomplete picture and I'm just, I'm just really confused. So you can see somebody who hasn't done all these things, hasn't read all these transcripts and, you know, and seen all of this could be really confused and just kind of depends upon their priors, right? Like whatever, however they feel about certain racial groups or the cops or whatever, that's just kind of how they're going to line up behind this. Yeah, I mean, it's, we live in a really partisan age, and and uh, and in an age of social media where uh, you don't have. I mean, it, it, to really understand this trial, it takes you know hours of, of watching some some of these uh, you know, the way things were presented and all of that. Um, I, I think to really do it justice, you, need to, you might need to do some kind of mini series or something, and not just a not just a documentary. Um, so yeah, when you have something that's this complicated and this high stakes, uh, given given everything that happened after it, um, it's the way that we get information these days is not well suited to to a good result. Okay, so before I let you go, uh, something I have a little more confidence in, but again, it's still contested and it's ongoing and it's preliminary. And, uh, you know, this is going to take years of discussion about best methodologies to figure out what's going on here. But uh, I mentioned at the outset here that our understanding since 2003, since that big paper came out, was that inequality has been increasing. Um, You know, the top 1% has been pulling away from the rest of us. And this new paper from Auten and Splinter, uh, I believe two, I believe two Treasury Department economists, if I'm not mistaken, uh, they argue that no, in fact, if you uh, account for income in a little better way, so you, you count income better, you include government transfers in a better way, um, you you count taxable units in a better way, so you know breaking apart married people's tax returns and actually looking at their individual contributions. You know, there's a variety of methodological concerns that went into this uh, paper to try to improve, quote unquote, the previous scholarship. But uh, what they find is they find inequality hasn't increased. Not that inequality is not bad or that, you know, it doesn't exist, but that it hasn't increased. It hasn't skyrocketed since the 1960s. So your impression of this paper. Yeah, well, my impression is that you know, this this feels like it should be a really sexy topic. Um, as you mentioned, it should be you've got the Occupy Wall Street narrative and all this stuff that all this really um, explosive uh, you know leftist and right wing uh, you know thinking about capitalism and, and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, it's an extremely boring uh, debate between uh, warring camps of economists. Um, uh, these two guys, I, th- I think one is at Treasury and one of them is at the uh, Joint Committee on Taxation. Um, but basically, go through the the um, the tax data. So you, you start with tax data. In the tax data, it does appear that um, inequality is rising. Um, but the, the the known problem with it is that a lot of stuff isn't a lot of income isn't reported. So you need to find some way of estimating. And of course, when you give uh, um, academics uh, you know, a lot of freedom to do some estimating, you're going to end up with a with what we have here, which is you know different camps of people reaching completely different results. Um, so basically, the, the one of the biggest differences, if you look at their chart breaking down where the differences in methodology come from, one of the biggest differences is allocating, um, you know, a non-reported income. Uh, so, th- so they're, they're basically, they're using uh, tax audit data to distribute that income um, and finding that, you know, a, a surprising amount of the sort of evasion or whatever that, that leads to, um, 
income not being reported um, is toward the bottom end of the spectrum. And even among people with you who report negative, um, you know, negative income, you know, if you have a business and you lose money, you can report negative income. So some of those folks have unreported income um, as well. And they, they take that audit data and use that to uh, distribute out the uh, their estimate of, of who's not reporting income. Um, whereas... Um, <clears throat> The, the Piketty paper um, used sort of a flat, uh, my, my understanding is like a flat percentage. They didn't give any of it to people with negative income and then allocated the rest of it kind of proportionally to um, upward up, up for those people with positive income. And then you end up with a lot of it going to people who are very rich. So that's where the biggest difference comes from. But there's a whole list of like 15 different methodological um, differences that contribute in various ways. And it's, uh, as, as I said, it's very boring and very technical. Yeah, well, in, and the problem here is the stakes, right? So, uh, if if you if it's if it's possible that changing methodologies in these ways can completely obliterate your point, right? Can can, can completely remove this massive not just not just like you know flatten the curve, right? In, in <laughs> pandemic speak, but completely erase the curve. Uh, those are huge stakes. I mean, you're talking, we, we, we had some policies on the table. I mean, Bernie Sanders whole, you know, campaign, had he been, you know, lucky enough to win the nomination and go on to become president. I mean, these were massive changes to our system and you're talking about massive taxation and these could have had huge impacts on our economy and, you know, all wiped away by changes to methodology and, and whose methodology is better. And, in my opinion, at the end of the day, if we're not really sure which one's better, kind of the status quo should should reign, right? Um, but I mean, these are huge stakes. I mean, let, let's start with first, I want to talk about the stakes in a minute, but let's start with, you know, your impression, who's right? <laughs> Whose paper is right? Uh, the, the 2003 or the, the 2023? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not an economist and, and I haven't, you know, I've never worked with this data. I think it's, it's very difficult to get it actually. Um, but uh, I mean, my, my understanding is that Otten and Split, Splinter make some very good points about you know, using, basically they, they try to apply data to these questions uh, as much as they can rather than making assumptions. Um, that seems to be their overall um, their overall point. And I think that's a strong one. Um, the, the response so far has been um, largely that it's not plausible uh, for for um, for the unreported income to have shifted so much toward people who are less rich. That's that's what um, that's what the uh, um, other team has said. I mean that that, that could be true. I don't I don't know. Um, it, at the end of the day, it's a very technical debate among people who have very specialized knowledge of very specific data sets and access to those data sets that other people don't have. Um, uh, but but yeah, I, th- I think this definitely should should shift our, our view of it. Should shift our priors. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, as you said, uh, you can still say that inequality is bad, even if it hasn't risen. So I don't know if that, how much that is going to affect the debate. Yeah, I mean, it, but, it, you know, the, the larger black cloud over my head about all this stuff, like when I read your report on police shootings and race, uh, you know, if you talk to liberals, they think thousands of black Americans are being killed every year and it's like 20. Right. And that's not even accounting for whether it was justified or not. But that's just looking at the numbers. Oh, it's right? un- unarmed. Unarmed, sorry, yes. Uh, And, um, you know, if you understand it one way, you might think, let's abolish the police, right? And let's let's do all these really drastic things. And if you understand it a completely different way, it's like, no, uh, not only should we not abolish them, we should probably increase it because that actually ended up hurting the communities where the police pulled back. And so these are major swings in policy. And uh, it seems like a lot of this was driven by really, really 
misleading, flawed, and partisan public discourse. Uh, what say you about all that? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think this is a crisis for uh, science, you know, social science more broadly. You have all, all these studies constantly coming out, um, and people have partisan motives for amplifying some studies and downplaying others. Um, and at the end of the day, it, it could really hinge on the fact that you can have two different ways of, of looking at the same data, and um, neither one of them might necessarily be bad, uh, and they will give you different results out of the same data. There's there's uh, just so many different ways that you can take a data set and, and analyze it in different ways to get it to spit out something different. Um, and I think that's something the public, you know, hopefully. Sh- should appreciate without completely just ignoring everything that uh, that statistics can tell them at all, which is kind of a, a fine line to walk. It feels like people either uh, just you know, hate hate um, scientists or they or they uh, you know, parrot parrot um, any scientific study as if it's gospel. I think you need to have a middle ground there. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not a political conservative, but uh, you know I know many of my conservative friends. One of the points they often make to me, and I take to heart, is uh, they would like gradual change. They would like to reflect. They would like to deal with data for a while and deal with a problem for a while before we just drastically alter society. And I got to say, again, I'm not a political conservative, but this is kind of a point in their favor, right? <laughs> like before we drastically change the tax system, before we, uh, you know, errat- you know, completely eliminate police, those kinds of things, we might want to sit with this data for a while, reflect, uh, because a lot of this stuff you can't actually see by looking at it, right? You can't see inequality. You've got to construct these things out of databases. You've got to make assumptions. You've got to make estimates. Uh, and it can it can swing wildly one way or another if you're not careful. Yeah, exactly. Robert Berbergen, we've barely, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have brought you on today to talk about these two topics. We should have talked about, <laughs> you know, a tiny fraction of them. But uh, anyway, I, I appreciate you coming on today and helping us better understand these issues. Well, thanks for having me. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing the song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you Good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.